0: Coming up next is Upstate's HealthLink on air. On this week's show, we'll get an update on ADHD.
1: The, the gender ratio is of boys to girls in the population is about three to one, but in clinics it's higher. It's about six to one to nine to one, and we think that's because boys tend to be more disruptive, and being disruptive gets them referred to treatment, and so they get treated earlier.
0: Plus, with winter coming on, we'll learn how to avoid those winter head injuries.
2: The first thing to know is that falls are actually the leading cause of traumatic brain injury, especially in the very old and the very young.
0: And could a favorite part of your holidays be making you ill?
3: We know that a real um, Christmas tree, evergreen tree, has mold growing on it, and there's many children who have mold allergies.
0: All that and a selection from our healing muse, they're all coming up right after the news. Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your weekly dose of information about health and medical issues affecting central New Yorkers from the region's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Linda Cohen. On this week's show, with winter officially starting, we take a look at how to avoid those head injuries that winter can bring. Plus, could your Christmas tree be making you sick? But first, an update on ADHD what we need to know. ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, is the most common behavioral disorder of childhood and it's the topic of much research because the ramifications of having this disorder are many, far-reaching and lasting into adulthood. Well, here with more on all of this is Dr. Stephen Ferrone. He's a distinguished professor of psychiatry at Upstate Medical University, and he spent the better part of his career looking for answers regarding this complex of symptoms. He's here with some updates about what's new in ADHD research. Welcome, Dr. Ferrone. Thanks for coming in. Thank you. Let's begin by reminding our listeners what we mean by the term ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. What exactly is it? Okay, so
1: ADHD is defined by the three sets of symptoms, inattention, being distractible, not paying attention in class, not paying attention while you're driving, uh, hyperactivity, uh, this the classic sign the little child running about, uh, climbing on furniture, being overactive, and impulsivity, acting without thinking, the child running into the street to chase a ball, not looking for cars, that sort of thing.
0: So what's the incidence of this Where does, in terms of how, how frequent We have it lots exist? of good
1: information on that. And the most recent collection of oh, maybe 100 studies from around the world tells us the incidence is about 5%. And it's fairly consistent around the world. There's no meaningful geographic variation. So it's 5% in the U.S., 5% in, in Europe, 5% in Australia.
0: Do we see any gender bias here? I mean, in other words, do we see it more apt to occur in boys versus girls?
1: Absolutely. ADHD is more common in boys, Um, and one technical point is that the gender ratio of boys to girls in the population is about three to one, but in clinics, it's higher. It's about sometimes six to one to nine to one, and we think that's because boys tend to be more disruptive, and being disruptive gets them referred to treatment, and so they get treated earlier. And the problem with that, of course, is that you have many inattentive girls and also inattentive boys who aren't treated because they're, they're sitting in the classroom not paying attention, but they're not bothering anybody. So nobody says, let's have your doctor check you out to see if you have ADHD. And sometimes they don't get referred until later in life, which is a problem because they miss a lot of um, school learning and other activities in life that they could do better at if they had been more attentive.
0: So what exactly, you were mentioning impulsivity and activity and all of this and a lack of attention, you know, what does this begin to look like and at how early can you begin to see that in the developing child?
1: You can see it fairly early, it's sometimes in as early as preschool. Um, typically it's not diagnosed until school age. Uh, it depends on how severe it is. The more severe cases tend to onset early. Um, we've certainly had cases where you ask a parent about their ADHD child, and they say, he was always different. I knew in the womb he was kicking, and <laughs> he was more active than the, my other children, children were. Usually, though, it's, it's it usually it onsets sometime in childhood. Um, by definition, it has to onset before the age of 12 to be called ADHD uh, by our diagnostic uh, criteria.
0: Does it conti- Do
1: we continue? Do, well, first of all, do we know what causes it is the, is the first question. Uh, cause is a very interesting question, and there's a lot of research on that. Um, ADHD is what we call a complex disorder, um, no different from other complex disorders in uh, in medicine, such as hypertension, which can be caused by having bad genes, having being too stressed out, eating the wrong foods. In ADHD, we believe, or we, I should say we know now, that there are clearly genetic causes. We know that's... That's without a fact.
0: So there are family histories
1: of this. There's no yeah, no doubt about that. If you fail, you, that run, ADHD runs in families, but it's not as if there's one gene that causes ADHD, and if you have the ADHD gene, you've got it. Uh, it's not like the breast cancer gene, for example. In some families, if, you, if that gene is segregating in the family, you're at high risk to get it because um, it's there. Um, with ADHD, it's really many, many genes. It's a combination of we don't know yet our latest data suggests it could be as many as hundreds or even thousands of genes wow. that combine and then combine with environmental risk factors these environmental risk factors that we know about typically onset very early in life so for example if a, a child if a mother has a difficult pregnancy the child has a difficult birth uh, children who are born at low birth weight have a higher risk for ADHD so we think that both the genetic and the environmental factors are converging on the brain very early in development and Rewiring it in a way that leads to ADHD. It's
0: interesting because it's always nature nurture. I mean, it, I don't think you can point to very many things in life that aren't some factor because even when you have a genetic predisposition right. to something, people will say it doesn't necessarily get expressed unless the environment is such to help right. it get expressed, that, positively exactly or right. negatively.
1: That's exactly right. We don't, in, in science, we really don't talk about nature nurture anymore. In fact, the environment affects actually changes your genes there's yeah. a whole field called epigenetics that right and when you're stressed out your gene actually changes because a little piece of a little chemical attaches to the gene and the amount of the expression of the gene actually changes and changes your uh, your behavior so
0: it's not a, it's kind of an unnatural separation the fact is that they're constantly
1: injured. it's it's not helpful it's essentially
0: yeah so right now um well i guess one other point i would ask though is is this truly a disorder because I think that's been raised in other conversations Mm -hmm. I've had, or is it somewhat a reflection of the kind of society or the kind of demands of our current uh, civilization in terms of performance?
1: Ah, In other
0: words, this this need for this kind of attention or this kind of focus, Mm -hmm. um, sustaining focus over long periods of time. In other words, in a prior time in history, would we be labeling these individuals as having a disorder? I guess is the uh, question?
1: Well, good question now, uh, the answer is that in prior early in history, we didn't label them, and that was a problem because people had this disorder, but they just weren't getting the diagnosis. So it's like saying someone um, was having a heart attack and they didn't diagnose heart disease. it wasn't is was it a real disease? Well, yes, it's still real. It just wasn't diagnosed. In fact, you can go back. In the medical literature back into the 19th century, in some cases the 18th century, and find in textbooks um, descriptions of children who today we would say have ADHD. They didn't call them ADHD. They didn't call them anything. They just—it was unclear what it was. But there are clear they were descriptions. It was problematic in some way, though. There was a German textbook. They describe a child called they called fidgety Phil, oh. uh, who clearly had ADHD. Wasn't diagnosed. The first um, report in the medical literature was I think it was 1901 in a British journal where a British physician clearly described an ADHD sim- symptom which he called something like deficits in moral control. <laughs> uh, so it's not a it's not a uh, something that only emerges in modern society. It's been around for quite some time. And
0: not just because we have a highly demanding environment these days. Exactly. Exactly. So what are some of the very briefly actually actually if you're just joining us to our listeners, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on Air? I'm Linda Cohen along with researcher and professor of psychiatry, Doctor Stephen Ferrone from Upstate Medical University, and we're talking about ADHD. So what's the best way to help a person and how early can you get involved in helping?
1: Well, first of all, the sooner Thanks. the better. Uh, many parents make the mistake of, of waiting, 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 thinking that it will get better um, because they don't like the idea of their child being treated for a psychiatric problem or a psychological problem. So early treatment is better because in a child's life, one of the most important things in the child's life is, number one, that they're learning in school, and number two, that they're integrating well with their peers. Um, let's imagine a five-year-old child who has symptoms of ADHD, it's causing social difficulties, as they enter first grade, they're not doing so well in their academics, and the parent says, I'm going to wait a few years. Well, that few years is a very long time in the child's life. They become eight years old. It's about a third of their life now. They've been untreated and in a difficult situation. We have very good treatments. The standard treatments these days are uh, medication followed by what we call supplementary treatments to deal with issues that are not treated well by medication. Like what? So the supplementary treatments in, for children are typically a behavioral therapy program. If the child's behavior isn't fully controlled, um, then you teach the parents better techniques for parenting so that they can re- reward reward the child's behavior appropriately or punish the child's behavior appropriately so that um, they get better control.
0: so that there's there's more structure in a sense in their lives,
1: and that creates more structure exactly because ADHD is uh, at the core of it a disorder of self-regulation the inability the brain is not able to regulate itself the way the average brain can and so you need stronger external controls.
0: So basically, we're continuing to use medication. Are there is there any blowback? with with the kinds of medication that's being used these days are we over medicating what's going on today
1: so the word over medicating is used in two senses one is that too many children are being medicated and others that the doses are too high Correct. Um, usually it's if a doctor's doing a good job the doses won't be too high they'll the there's a standard approach to dosing it and that's been people have been using uh, for example stimulant medications since the 1960s for um, for treating ADHD.
0: Like something like Ritalin. Is that still being used? Uh,
1: exactly. Ritalin was first uh, approved for the use of behavioral disorders in the 1960s. Although I should mention that the the, this, the ability of stimulants to treat ADHD was discovered in I think 1920s in Rhode Island. Uh, actually, by accident. The doctor was, uh, was giving children stimulants for some other reason at a hospital school in Rhode Island. And the next day, the teachers came to him and said, what did you do to these kids? They're so much better. Um, and the, the kids in the school actually called it the math pill that it would help them because it helped them focus and do their mathematics.
0: Wow. So at this point, do you feel that things like behavioral therapies and even things like teaching children to relax, perhaps meditative techniques and all that, 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 is is that kind of more just adjunctive or is it really significant in terms of helping these kids?
1: Well, I always refer to what the data tell me, what research says. And the research is very clear that the medications have the strongest effect in terms of controlling behavior, no doubt about that. The other, um, these other methods um, will help some kids sometimes, but the strength of the effect is much weaker. And that's why uh, the current approach is you get an ADHD medication working, and then you see what else is wrong. After the medication is appropriately dosed, is the child still having problems? And Problems in school, you deal with it in school. Problems in the family, you deal with it in the family. But the idea that, well, every child should have behavior therapy in the family first to see if that works, the problem there is that some parents are very good parents, and it's not a problem with parenting. They're actually doing a great job with, uh, with their parenting skills. The child needs the treatment, and the more you delay the treatment, the more the child is exposed to these difficult problems. If they're
0: on medication, is that for life? Or uh, does it, is it the kind of thing that people do, yeah. quote-unquote, grow out of?
1: Uh, about a third of ADHD children will grow out of their ADHD by the time they're young adults. So there is this, we call, age-dependent decline of the disorder. Uh, we've, we've, and we know this from studies, some of which I've done when I was uh, at Harvard, where we follow children up, we diagnose them in childhood, and then we just periodically take a look at them in adolescence and in, in adulthood. There are now many of these studies, and when you put them all together, uh, in a statistical process which I did a number of years ago, it shows that about a, again a third uh, remit their symptoms and are doing well. Now two thirds still have what we call impairing symptoms of the disorder, and. The rule is if you have impairing symptoms of the disorder, you should maintain your treatment.
0: In the little bit of time we have left, I don't want to run out of time, what's new in terms of research? What have you found that either surprised you or something that would be interesting
4: well, I think with regard?
1: There's, there's lots of new data, but some of the more interesting things, on one side of ADHD's impairments, um, there's now very good data that um, ADHD increases the risk Injuries, both for children and adults. But this and seems to make
0: sense. If you're impulsive, you might just fall off a cliff. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Jump off a cliff. <laughs>
1: absolutely, and that medication reduces those injuries. So when people are on medication, they have fewer injuries. More uh, worrisome, a uh, study from a very large study from the population of Denmark showed that people with ADHD actually had an increased risk for premature death. Uh, it wasn't a huge risk. It's not something I'm saying, parents, don't worry. Your child's not going to drop dead. But because of the, because in particular of the accident rate, um, there's a slight increased risk for ADHD people to, to die younger than they ought to. Uh, on the biological front, we've got some exciting data from our genetic studies where we're finally, after many years, um, discovering specific genes that we can pin down. And say this This is one of the genes, one of the many genes that's involved in causing ADHD.
0: And what's the hope again? without running out of time what's the hope in finding these genes what's the plan the
1: hope is that we discover a biological pathway that's new that we have not linked adhd before and then within that pathway there's some target in this in the cell or in the brain that we can target with the medication that will help treat the disorder
0: so you could either turn it off or turn it on
1: that would be our ultimate goal uh, or the ultimate goal really would be prevention
0: right great Once again, always fascinating. Thanks so much for coming in. My guest has been Dr. Stephen Farone, a distinguished professor of psychiatry at Upstate Medical University and an expert in ADHD. Next up how to prevent those winter head injuries. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. Linda Cohen along with you. As the winter season arrives, families are planning outdoor activities and winter sports. Well, according to the National Pediatric Trauma Registry, many winter sports can result in head related injuries, and traumatic brain injuries are the leading cause of death and disability in children and young adults. Here with more on this and ways to prevent these injuries is Dr. Brian Rieger. He's the director of Upstate's Concussion Center. Welcome, Dr. Rieger. Thanks for coming in. Good morning. So you and I have spoken many times about the hazards of traumatic brain injury and concussions in our kids. But once again, remind us, why is it so devastating when either of these happen, either a concussion or a traumatic brain injury, especially if they're not recognized?
2: Well, a concussion, first of all, is a so-called mild traumatic brain injury. And thankfully, um, because concussion represents about 80% of all traumatic brain injury, thankfully, it's usually um, a short-lived event with no long-term consequences. Where we get concerned is when concussions go unrecognized and untreated, and especially if that leads to a person suffering another injury or experiencing significant stress because they don't know what's going on, they're overdoing it and making themselves worse. So really, uh, my message has always been that if we handle concussion properly, um, we can have a good outcome.
0: And usually it occurs because of a jolt or a blow to the head. Right. And as I said, winter sports apparently you know, leave us open to a lot of those kinds of head injuries, especially amongst children and young adults.
2: Yes, and, and actually... Uh, The first thing to know is that falls are actually the leading cause of traumatic brain injury, especially in the very old and the very young. Um, So as we enter the winter season, all of us should uh, be more careful uh, to try to avoid falling because it certainly can result in some serious head injury, concussion or worse.
0: So what do you think um, of the winter sports seem to be the most dangerous? I mean, is it just all across the board? What stands out to you?
2: Well, I don't think winter sports are necessarily more dangerous than other sports. Um, hockey uh, is a, tends to be a winter sport, um, obviously, and its uh, rate of concussion is quite high, up there with football and other high-risk sports. And there's actually been a lot of attention in youth hockey on trying to reduce the incidence of concussion through rule changes and <clears throat> not allowing uh, kids to start uh, checking and serious contact until they're a little older, things like that.
0: But it seems to me, uh, just from my own experience, things like sledding, ice skating, skiing, snowmobiling, and snowboarding should all, you know, have the potential for people to fall and therefore have head injury.
2: Yes, uh, in in all of those. Uh, things that you mentioned, people are going fast. And when you're going fast, your head is moving fast and a fall or a collision will suddenly stop your head. And unfortunately, while we can put a helmet on the head, we cannot put a seatbelt on the brain. So when the head is suddenly stopped by a tree, by the ice, by another person, by the boards uh, and hockey, uh, the brain is thrown around inside the skull. And it's that. Uh, mechanical motion of the brain inside the skull uh, that tends to uh, produce traumatic brain injury, including concussion.
0: The other p- fact that I noticed when I was kind of looking into this was that winter is a time where driving is more treacherous for most drivers, with ice and snow and the kinds of winters we've had of late. And I know uh, I found some stats that said that car crashes and driving accidents are also the leading causes of death amongst children 2 to 14. So it seems that winter, again, is a time to pay attention specifically to preparing yourself for driving in that Yes, I, I actually
2: hadn't heard that statistic before. That's interesting. I do know that for Um, adolescents and young adults age 15 to 24, motor vehicle accidents represent a leading cause of um, traumatic brain injury. And, you know, that combination of young drivers and unfortunately young drinkers uh, can be quite problematic. And uh, inexperienced drivers during the winter season, it's going to be particularly rough. So I think special attention to uh, safety on the highways is certainly important to prevent not only head injury but any kind of injury
0: absolutely. I do remember uh, anecdotally that when my children were of the age to start driving, my husband had the idea that he was going to get football helmets for every one of them <laughs> in there so that once they start driving, of course you know that certainly we're going to be fighting not to wear them, but the <laughs> yes. idea that we've never actually asked kids to wear helmets as they drive is kind of unique. Yes. And potentially there's some there's some value there but let's get to this idea of helmets for a minute. Okay. Cuz it seems to me as you said that while it doesn't totally protect the role of helmets in any of these sports or activities sounds like it would be a valuable thing to to consider.
2: Yes, well this is an interesting question because There's a lot of attention right now to seeing if people can improve helmet design to reduce the risk of concussion. What's important to know is that the um, helmet is most effective at preventing things like skull fractures or more severe brain injuries. And helmets are very good at that in football, in ice hockey, in snow sports the risk of severe, uh, moderate to severe traumatic brain injury, the risk of skull fracture is significantly reduced with a helmet. However, again, because the brain is floating inside the skull, a helmet will not prevent a concussion. And um, it's unclear exactly how much a helmet will reduce the risk of concussion. Certainly, it makes sense that it would reduce the amount of force that's transmitted to the skull Uh, but often it's the twisting motion of the head uh, that is problematic, and the helmet provides no protection against that. So um, it's very important to wear a helmet uh, to save your life, uh, potentially. In terms of the risk of concussion, what we certainly don't want people to think is if I have a helmet on, I'm not going to get a concussion, because that is absolutely wrong.
0: That's a key point. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink On air. I'm Linda Cohen here with Dr. Brian Rieger, Director of Upstate's Concussion Center. And we're talking about winter sports, the potential for head injury and concussion, and how to prevent your kids from winter head injuries. Let's try to go sport by sport right now, just briefly, sure. and kind of take take into consideration what you can do then, perhaps in addition to wearing a helmet, that might prevent you from having these kinds of head injuries. Let's start with ice skating for a minute. I mean, ice skating is such a wonderful sport. Kids do it everywhere. I mean, you know, you'll see a little pond somewhere or a little, um, I don't know, body of water and it starts to get cold, it freezes over. What are the kinds of things that you suggest to people to be careful with or about?
2: Well, I think with respect to head injury at least, Um, I think I certainly encourage people to wear helmets when they're skating, even if they're not playing hockey. Um, In our clinic, we've had numerous cases of people who've just been out ice skating, um, taken a fall, and had a pretty bad um, head injury and or concussion. So again, the helmet won't entirely prevent that, but it can certainly help.
0: It would dampen the effects of the fall, though, to some Cer- degree.
2: Certainly it would prevent the more serious problems, and one would um, certainly think that it could help to prevent concussion as well, although, again, it's a little harder to, to know that. Um, so I think wearing a helmet's always a good idea. Um, I think what what you're going to hear me say with all these sports, too, is that your behavior on the ice is very important. So when you see the little kids whipping around the ice, uh, Uh, playing tag, there's a good reason that the uh, monitors on the ice don't like that behavior because it certainly increases the risk, not only that they could hurt themselves, but that they could um, hurt others. And when you're public ice skating, I like to ice skate. I do it a lot uh, with my daughters. And there's varying degrees of skill out there. Yes. And someone who's <laughs> kind of got one hand on the boards yeah. and is little tentative, if a little kid comes whipping by and manages to nudge him, you know, it can cause injury. So I think behavior um, and safe behaviors on the ice is certainly uh, as much uh, as as important as safety equipment.
0: Yeah. Um, and in addition, obviously, if you're going to be skating on something other than a rink, you really need to know that it's safe ice as well
2: absolutely safe ice not just in terms of any risk of uh, falling through the ice such as when you're around moving water um, inlets and outlets of lakes but also um, the, the uh, condition of the ice the surface of the ice because you can go be going pretty fast and if you hit a divot or you hit a change in ice texture or, you or a branch be, you <laughs> can be or a branch you can be launched pretty uh, pretty far and again, You know, skating is a sport where you can get moving pretty quick if you know what you're doing.
0: How about stuff like, how about sledding? Anything that jumps out at you in terms of head injury and sledding?
2: I would say that, at least in our clinic, anecdotally, I don't know if you have statistics for sledding, but in our clinic, I would say that most of the sledding incidents we see come from um, individuals who have done things on the sled that probably didn't uh, make much sense, like trying to stand up on a sled uh, to go down the hill or building the giant jump in the middle of the hill and uh, uh, being thrown off a sled or sledding where obviously you're too close to trees or other things like that.
0: And how about this idea of sledding with your feet first or sitting up instead of lying down head first? Do you, do you feel like that's a good recommendation?
2: Yeah, I mean, anything that uh, can protect, you know, the, the, the biggest problem, uh, one of the biggest problems with sledding incidents is collision with another object. Um, the same is true with skiing. So, if your feet go in first, obviously that would make sense. That it would reduce the risk of head injury. Um, skiing, we have the same problem with, being, you know, skiing through trees. You know, it's very exciting, especially for kids to do that. It's a way to test your skill. But as soon as you're around stationary objects and you're going fast, uh, it it increases the risk of um, injuries significantly. And
0: the same would be true for. Um, the idea of, of jumps and all these things that especially kids like to set up and try. If they're becoming airborne <laughs> and they literally can come crashing down, Right. the and first issue, the, the first thing yes. you worry about besides broken limbs is your head.
2: Yeah. Well, terrain parks have become very popular in ski resorts, especially with adolescents and young adults. And um, that has contributed to an increase in injury in that group. Um, because of risk-taking behaviors
0: so in all of these including snowmobiling or any of these that safety helmets can help but what you it sounds to me why don't you summarize what you're saying Yeah,
2: i would say that first of all everybody should know how to recognize a concussion and what to do about it so if one does occur we're minimizing the risks there in terms of prevention, uh, certainly consideration to be, should be given to a helmet in any of these sports, not just for concussion, but certainly to prevent life-threatening injuries. And again, I think a theme that runs through everything we've been talking about is the importance of good judgment and, and behavior that reduces the risk of injury, whether it's um, safe driving, um, making good choices about where you're going to ski or sled or skate.
0: Um, so that really does fall a lot to the parents, I would I think, think and, so. or some adult who's su- in some supervisory capacity to remind your kids to ski safely, to skate safely, yes. and in, all of that.
2: In, in hockey, we have officials who can. Right know, when it's a, it, right but, when it's a sport competition. But when we're not in there, yes, exactly.
0: Well, once again, very. Helpful information. My guest has been Dr. Brian Rieger. He's the director of Upstate's Concussion Center. Thanks again for joining us. Always appreciate you. I'm Linda Cohen, and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. from the experts at Upstate. Telling us what to do for dry skin in the winter is Dr. Stephen Blatt, Director of the General Pediatric Division at Upstate.
5: At this time of year, one of the most common problems we see in children, and I'm pretty sure in adults too, although I don't take care of adults, is dry skin. During the summer, The air around us is so moist, and we live in, especially in Syracuse, in a moist environment. We don't have dry skin, but during the winter and the cold cold weather months, a number of things happen. First, when the temperature drops, the air is able to hold less moisture. It's more dry. That's number one. Then we go inside our homes, we turn the heat on, the furnace dries out the air even more. If you live in a home or an apartment that has leaks in the doors and windows there's more cold air coming in the furnaces on more it dries out even more so we live in a very dry environment and then one of the messages that healthcare professionals have been saying a lot over the past few years is wash your hands to get rid of those germs get rid of the the bad viruses and that actually dries our hands out even more and right around this time of year hands and and arms and legs, they come in and they're getting dry, they're getting cracked and very itchy. And when they itch, we scratch and that damages the skin even more. So we're a perfect storm to have really bad skin in Syracuse during the winter. So what could people do? There's been a lot of controversy about bathing because we know that bathing when, and if you remember when you are a little kid and you would sit in the bath for an hour, your skin gets all crinkly because the oils came out, come out. So we know bathing will actually dry your skin. But bathing is okay as long as we moisturize as soon as we get out. You could put baby oil in the bathtub, and then when they get out, you want to put um, moisturizers on the same way you would put ketchup all over your hamburger. You want to slather it on and get your skin very... Um, and moist and silky smooth. And you can do that many times a day, and it's a lot of moisturizers. So what I tell my patients is start off with the least expensive moisturizer you could find. If that doesn't work, try another one, and everybody likes something different. The next thing is when you get out of the bathtub or the shower, don't take a towel and rub it on you. That's like putting sandpaper on your skin. Just pat yourself dry, and that'll... Cause less damage. Um, For people that have more involved dry skin, hydrocortisone cream, which is over the counter, hydrocortisone, either half percent or one percent, is very safe to use once or twice a day, especially on the areas that are more dry. So the things that we want to do is moisturize, moisturize, moisturize. If that doesn't work, add a little bit of hydrocortisone. And then the last thing is when. It's more than you could handle at home. Go to the doctor quickly. It is much easier to take care of skin before it gets bad. Once it gets real cracked and it, it could even bleed, then you need really high-potency steroids. You're much better off going early on. This is a case where early treatment is the best treatment.
0: Up next, could your Christmas tree be making you sick? You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. and you're listening to Upstate's HealthLink air, and it's time for your Healthy Monday Minute, a new year every week. If you've been following along with us, congratulations on a full year of healthy habits. Even if you have a ways to go on your goals, you should be proud of all your hard work. Remember that Monday is your weekly opportunity to reset your intentions, to build on your progress, and start again if you've had setbacks. Challenge yourself one week at a time, and you'll be there in no time. Use this week to set your goals for 2015. What has worked well this past year? What would you like to improve upon? Write down your objectives and break them down into smaller action steps so you can build upon them throughout the year ahead. Have a healthy Monday and a very happy and healthy new year. While it's the centerpiece for this holiday season, did you know that your Christmas tree may actually be doing damage to your health? That's right. It's been called Christmas Tree Syndrome. And we spoke to some researchers at Upstate Medical University who discovered it a few years ago. Apparently, it continues to be a potential health issue that you should know about. Here's what they said. Well, joining us this morning is Dr. Larry Kurlansky, former faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University, specializing in lung disease and allergy. Welcome, Dr. Kurlansky. Thanks for coming in today.
3: Well, thank you for having me.
0: So um, this case of Sneezy Sniffles around Christmas uh, could be your tree, hey?
3: (laughs) Well, yes. Um, I hate to be the Grinch that stole Christmas, but uh, for a long time we thought it was probably viral illnesses. Of course, it is the flu season. Um, But there have been some um, elegant studies showing that actually um, around Christmas, regardless of whether there's viruses or flu or anything, that um, children um, five days before Christmas have a huge um, increase in the number of uh, respiratory problems they have, and adults five days after Christmas, making people wonder whether the holiday in some way um, is the cause of, of these respiratory problems. Of course... Christmas is always kind of a stressful time, and visitors come to the home, may be exposed to different foods. But one of the uh, um, aspects that allergists have always wondered about has been what role may a Christmas tree play. We know that a real um, Christmas tree, evergreen tree, um, has mold growing on it. And, of course, there's many children who have mold allergies and whether this might play a role. Um,
0: that's very interesting. <clears throat> you know, like you said, you don't want to be the Grinch and you say, is nothing sacred? You know, the Christmas tree now is the, is, mm-hmm. is the source of this, these kinds of problems. But it does make sense. You're bringing a living organism, basically, into your home that's been out in the, in, in the world. Um, it's quite possible that you would think that it might bring something inside.
3: Well, it might. And allergists have mentioned this um, for years and years and years. And uh, one day, I thought, well, golly, we know what people are allergic to. If we knew what a Christmas tree might be um, emitting in the air, we could better counsel people. And it turned out there is only one study in the medical literature done in 1970 that looked at this whole issue and decided that it was not mold, but it was probably the uh, uh, balsam odor of, uh, of a Christmas tree and or maybe pollens like ragweed or grass that had stuck to it.
0: But then, in fact, there was some suspicion at that point. So
3: there was some suspicion, but there was no other, there literally was no other finding finding and study in the literature. And so we had the opportunity here to say, golly, we could figure out, find out what um, molds might be on Christmas trees. And therefore, we could, uh, um, and if there were even any molds, really, because um, nobody knew that. So what did you do? So what we did is to um, have members of the faculty and staff in the pedi- Pediatrics department at Upstate biopsy some Christmas trees, their Christmas <laughs> oh, trees, no. and provide a little snippet um, of their tree um, in a uh, in a sterile baggie, which uh, we then send to the Department of Microbiology and uh, in the Department of Pathology here. And uh, they, along with a a graduate student, um, who actually did um, quite a bit of the lion's share of the work here, did both cultures of the Christmas tree specimens and did DNA sequence analysis, which was pretty um, high tech and had never been done on this before. And what we found is that out of uh, 28 biopsies of Christmas trees, we actually recovered something like 54 different molds.
0: My goodness.
3: And uh, some of these molds were uh, molds that are just molds that grow on, on trees, evergreen trees, and have never been known to cause problems in humans. But the four most common molds that we found are known clearly to be highly, highly allergic to, or can be highly allergic to humans, including children, who actually are more sensitive to molds than our adults usually and uh, these four molds um, were were quite numerous and uh, so it led to us although this was not proof to suggest that my golly um, a Christmas tree could be a source of uh, an incredible allergic exposure um, during the Christmas holidays,
0: so it's like a eureka moment almost. <laughs> it was for us, yes, yes. It so was surprising. Did it matter what kind of uh, live tree it was? I mean, I know there's a variety.
3: There's a variety. We didn't really look at that, but we knew that there were a couple of different kinds that we got, and um, it was a uh, it was a quick study, mm-hmm. and uh, so we didn't ask. We didn't gather all the data one might possibly have gathered as to the type of tree. Or the type of homes, or whether people had allergy in the homes, and obviously we wanted to keep it as uh, we wanted to keep it as anonymous and simple as possible.
0: But you established definitively that these molds do exist yeah, on those trees, absolutely, and therefore could very well be the, the the cause of these kinds of allergic reactions. Yes. So where did you publish it?
3: We published it in the Annals of uh, uh, Allergy, Asthma, and uh, Immunology.
0: And that was just recently. Just right?
3: recently, two thousand and eleven in June.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Wow. So did it make a big stir?
3: It's made some stir. And uh, people have again have wondered about this, and it and uh, it would appear that the longer the tree stays in the house, and the nice and warmer it is in the house, uh, the more likely it is that more mold spores are going to be in the air. And of course, we all know that children like to sit under the tree, so one can picture. Um, little mold spores kind of raining down on them. <laughs>
0: oh, my God, that's a gruesome thought. I knew. <laughs> so here's what I, I'm wondering. Um, you know, Obviously, people listening to this are going to say, well, no more live trees for me. I'm going out and getting an artificial tree. But clearly, you found something additional that artificial trees may or may not be the answer.
3: Well, yes. Um, it's been known for a long time that artificial trees, um, which seem to be the answer, um, are reused. And so they're stored um, for 300 60 days of the year um, in a bag often in a basement or the attic um, where they can collect dust and so of course dust um, dust allergy is also um, a big issue um, for allergic people and so we've counseled over the years that clearly um, an artificial tree needs to be dusted off um, in a safe place um, in the garage out of the house would be nice um, before it before it's used
0: Right about right. now, I can picture our listeners freaking out out there. <laughs> well, what do we do? We have these trees, which we, you know, we we is are essential part of our holiday. So, so what do we do?
3: Well, be, in addition to having an artificial tree, which of course is unacceptable to uh, many traditional people, um, the other approach that has been used is to have a live tree. Um, there are now many um, tree uh, companies that supply Christmas trees that will um, wash them off and spray them uh, very intensely, sometimes even with um, anti-mold solutions. Um, And so even though there's been no studies on that, it would seem like it would make it a safer than tree for those people who have allergies. I hate to
0: sound like a doubting Thomas, but I'm always worried that the cure could be more dangerous than, than the problem. I mean, what are they spraying them with and what are you bringing <laughs> into your well, home? <laughs> that's,
3: that's a good point. And, um, and we don't really know, and, mm. and there haven't been any really formal studies on this. The other is to take a tree, which you may have gone out and cut down yourself, and to, um, and to hose it down before bringing it into the house, let it dry, um, maybe in the garage and that seems to also, um, uh, we hope, be somewhat more effective. Uh, Doubt doubt that uh, all the mold spores would be removed, but um, it's certainly a a good thing to consider doing.
0: There was also something I read when I was uh, preparing to meet with you um, about the sap being a problem and that there's some suggestion about wearing gloves. Did you run into any of that?
3: The, in the original study, um, sap was thought to be actually the issue um, in that many people were sensitive not only by maybe being vaporized in the air but by touching the tree itself and uh, developing various rashes. Mm-hmm. And that was thought to be due to the sap.
0: But they don't know at this. that was never proven necessarily. Um,
3: 1970, that was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, tests were not as sophisticated.
0: Right. But I think the fact that you were actually able to determine that there were these molds and that they are clearly um, known causes of these kinds of illnesses is, is, a, is a big breakthrough actually.
3: In it's, um, it, we think it is. And it turns out one of the molds, which I'll mention, penicillium, which we all know as the mold that originally penicillin came from, um, is known to cause um, significant problems in children, in particular who are mold allergic and can um, be be a problem even if you're not a mold allergic and you're a child and exposed to significant amounts um, penicillium is the usual green mold that we sometimes find on bread but really it grows through it grows in homes as well as outdoors um, all year long and it can be concentrated in the winter so we recognize it as a, si- a significant problem and i think finding that much on uh, these tree specimens was really quite surprising.
0: Do you think there may be a difference in terms of region or where the trees are grown or found? I mean, this is, I know it's speculative on your part, but it would what be spe- would you think? Quite
3: likely, um, quite likely because there are clearly molds that were peculiar to certain evergreen trees, and in, and in different parts of the country there's going to be different kinds.
0: But we do see the f- initial statistics that you offered in terms of there being a higher increase of these kinds of respiratory illnesses mm-hmm. or... That is universal throughout the, the country.
3: That would be universal. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, there's lots to think about, and uh, obviously keep your tree well ventilated. I would think, and wash it down if you can. Well, uh, my guest has been Dr. Lawrence Kulansky, pulmonologist and um, former faculty member in the Department of Pediatrics at Upstate Medical University. Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse,
4: with this week's selection. Thank you, Linda. Oncologists are physicians who specialize in the treatment of cancer. They are often asked how they manage to stay connected to their patients and remain optimistic when every day means helping patients and families cope with difficult diagnoses. Radiation oncologist Dr. Robin Schoenthaler, who practices at Mass General Hospital in Massachusetts, offers us her answer in her essay, O Night Divine on the Cancer Unit. Here is a brief excerpt from that essay. This is how it happens. I am picking through produce at the grocery store late in the evening, and my cell phone screeches so loudly that people look over and watch while I fumble to find it and hush its ringing and lift it to my ear. I brace my shoulders and answer it, and feel the dread on both ends of the line. I look like every other distracted shopper, phone pressed to ear, eyes gazing at some middle distance, perhaps debating what kind of squash to buy for dinner, or whether or not we still need bread. But in fact, I am being levitated. The voice on the phone is transporting me away from the brightly lit rows of vegetables into a darker world, a horrifying universe where a cancer is growing unfettered and where an emergency room doctor is standing in front of a crowded desk trying to dispassionately tell me an appalling story about a tumor causing overnight blindness or paralysis or a sudden sense of smothering in a patient who lies waiting in a bed across the room. I stand completely still and listen hard, and when I hang up, I am in exactly the same position, still clutching the bananas or the cool and fragrant peach. Cancer emergencies are usually calamitous, sometimes life-threatening, and in my first few years of practice as a radiation oncologist, these phone calls and their horrific stories unnerved me. Twenty years later, I see these calls as embarkations into a holy land. I answer the phone, murmur some reassurances, and a short time later I am standing outside the patient's room. I have never met this person before, but soon we will be inextricably linked. I pause and hold the patient's chart close to my heart, and then I step across the threshold into a different realm of time and space. The Greeks have a word for moments like this, kairos, a time in between, a sacred time, a moment shared with the divine. Walking into a hospital room late at night, I feel as though I am walking into a temple, a sanctuary, a secret tunnel underneath the trenches. This is the stark and webbed interconnectedness between ill-patient and on-call doctor. Random secretarial assignments connected to a chance mangled cell mutation, rays of light interlaced with beams of radiation, bones and nerves wired to flesh and fear, sisters and suffering shared in shadowed sanctuaries, and losses and lessons linked in hospital rooms on nights divine.
0: for joining us for HealthLink on air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Please join us again next week when we take a look back at how a life-threatening illness has been conquered, plus how keeping health care facilities green meets the mission of community health, and why end-of-life planning can't wait. If you'd like to listen again to tonight's show, you can find a podcast of it on iTunes, just search for HealthLink on Air. That's all one word. And to keep up with all the goings on at Upstate, you can look for us on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, or check out the What's Up at Upstate blog at upstate.edu/slash What's Up. I'm Linda Cohen. Thanks for listening.